This is the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast with Wayne Scott and Gary Taylor. On this episode, the Aston Martin Heritage Trust meets Nicholas Mee. Discover more about the story of Aston Martin, amht.org.uk. Well, hello and welcome to another Aston Martin Heritage Trust podcast. Uh, Wayne Scott here again, just popping me head round the door to check on Gary Taylor, <laughs> who is here on episode seven. Hi, Gary. Hello, Wayne. Nice to see you again. How the devil are you? I'm very well, thanks. It's nice to be back here in the salubrious surroundings of the Aston Martin Heritage Trust podcast. I see you've cleaned <laughs> the leather specially for me. Oh, I have. We've, we've uh, oh, yes, during, during the winter period, we, uh, we've got the leather wipe out, so I hope you're impressed. It's very nice. I'm very impressed, as I, always I am here. And, of course, uh, if you haven't checked out the Aston Martin Heritage Trust, you really must do. Uh, you can find all the details uh, you need on the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast page, uh, where you can find all of the previous episodes of this podcast as well. Links to the Heritage Trust site are on there, and there is a new website in the offing, which is all very exciting. And, of course, details and information on everything we're talking about in this podcast and it's been exciting times for Aston Martin themselves actually because here we are January 2023 and big news out of Gaydon uh, that there are loads of new jobs going at Aston Martin in fact it's increasing its employment at its Gaydon headquarters so much so that they're creating 100 new jobs at their manufacturing facility and it's all in preparation for them unleashing a new generation of sports cars. So positive times for Aston Martin, Gary. I, I think you're right, and it's and it was great news, and it's, it seemed to come out of the blue. And let's not be shy, Wayne. I think Aston Martin has had a troubled uh, history in recent years. I mean, I, I think I think anyone would say that finances are haven't been too rosy, and I mean, hopefully, it's coming back together. So to received this news that they are creating jobs you know of that size i think it was magnificent news and i think this i think this shows confidence from the board in the aston martin product the brand the facilities because they they wouldn't be you know forking out for a hundred new employees if they if they were bunkering down i think they are really are committed to aston martin and to to power their way through this uh this turmoil they seem to be going through and uh, you know best of luck I, I think i think it's great news it was pleasant pleasant surprise well one of the nice things is that they're saying that it's going to offer full-time permanent employment to some of their agency staff that they've been relying on in recent months uh, especially working at aston martin sites uh, like those at st athen who have successfully launched the uh, dbx 707 last year of course so um nice to see that although there was a lot of temporary staff and a lot of flux in aston martin for a little time there as that new model came on stream they're actually taking those people in-house and it makes a lot of sense you don't have to then go out and recruit and retrain people they've got knowledge and experience within the brand already and it's good news because of course gary this year big year for the aston martin heritage trust because you're 25 years at the same time that aston martin Lagon themselves are celebrating 110 years so there's going to be a lot of champagne consumed this year oh i would hope so i would hope so but knowing the trustees of the uh, of, of the of the aston martin heritage tribe it won't be uh, it won't be champagne it'll be prosecco uh but i'm the treasurer so i may sneak in the odd uh, bottle of champagne every now and again but yes 25 years uh 2023 um 
We were born on the uh, uh, from the 5th of August 1998, spun off from the Aston Martin Owners Club uh, to protect the uh, the assets, uh, mainly the Ulster and some of the archive collection at that time. And we have just grown and grown since then. We you know we have a, a, a massive archive. Uh, we have a massive collection. We have about 25 cars now. Unfortunately, the museum, you know, is a, it's a lovely barn, you know, a medieval barn, but we can only hold about seven cars in there any one time, so in store outside. But the great news is, Wayne, is that our trustees meeting back in November is that we have committed to move out of the current premises within six years. It's always been an aspiration to move, but we have now committed uh, to do so. So within six years, we hopefully have a shiny new premises to, to champion, to display the cars, the collection, the archive, the trophies, so much uh, stuff as well. So this is very exciting for our 25th year and plans are, plans are afoot. Now, 25 years, we know when we were born on the 5th of August, but as you say, uh, Aston Martin, 110 years. Uh, but some do say, is it actually 110 years, uh, Wayne? Um, I think we've had this argument with both MG enthusiasts and it's MG's 100 years this year, but mm. let's just pedal back to, uh, to Aston Martin. So they're saying Aston Martin, 110 years, uh, 1913. Now, some may say that is not necessarily true. Now, Aston Martin were formed from Banford and Martin Limited. And yes, that was formed in 1913. But the name Aston Martin didn't appear till, uh, till later, about one or two years later. So there is a, a little bit of discussion there on, uh, is, is it actually 110 years? But we had a centenary back in, uh, 10 years ago. So, you know, that's where we are. Aston Martin were formed from Bamford and Martin in 1913. So that's what we're, we're staying with. But, you know, as I say, Wayne, you know, going back over 100, 110 years, MG have the same problem. It's their centenary this year. It's their 100 years this year. But some are saying that's not true. Some are saying it's in, 24, 25. I think that's the case, isn't it, Wayne? Yeah, that's right. They In MG circles, there's a bit of a discussion over whether old number one, which currently sits at the British Motor Museum at Gaydon, is the first MG, or whether it isn't, because although it was Cecil Kimber's special Morris that was designed to take on the Exeter and Land's End trials of that year, uh, in fact, it wasn't badged MG. In fact, the MG didn't come along till later in that decade. And of course, modern manufacturers, they need to make sure that they... Uh, recognize the beginnings of their actual company, the company that they now have. And so you'll see this with Jaguar, for example. Strictly, it was Jaguar's centenary last year because Swallow Sidecars, that William Wormsley and William Lyons began together, was the beginnings of what became Jaguar after the Second World War. It was just a name change, really. Uh, But of course, Jaguar Cars have to recognize 1939 because that was when Jaguar Cars Limited started. So all of these funny little uh, grey areas occur in history and it's here with Aston Martin as well you go back to 1912 and Lionel Martin and Robert Bamford were of course uh, car salesmen and they had a a sales room selling brand new singers at the time they were actually a dealership for singer so things come out of evolution businesses don't just turn on like a light bulb they sort of evolve over time and that's what we now have to unravel uh, 100 110 years later when we're looking back in history but I think we're going to have a lot of centenary 
series to come over the next decade or so because of course the 1920s was the heyday for especially the British motor industry and the, the the gaining of traction I guess if you pardon the pun of the motor car around the world so a lot of companies started in the 1920s a lot of companies didn't survive the 1930s that followed but we'll see a lot of centenaries over the next 10 years I imagine. Just going back to the, the origins of Aston Martin I think what has been established was that Bamford and Martin Limited was established in 1913 and they built their first car, the, the Coal Scuttle, uh, unusual name, but there we are, um, in 1914 and registered that as an Aston Martin in March uh, 1915. And then it, it successfully appeared at Brooklyn's uh, track. And I think there's a picture on the uh, on Facebook and other places uh, when we posted the congratulations, happy birthday, Aston Martin, a picture of Cole Scuttle itself at Brooklyn's in, in 1921. So that's what we're playing with. That's what we're acting on. And uh, if you have any um, any opinions that the uh, uh, birthday of 110 years is wrong, then please go to the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast uh, website and you just put your comments there. And do be patient. There may be some time to reply because Gary will be popping open the champagne by then. So, uh... Prosecco. Prosecco. <laughs> oh, Prosecco. Oh, okay. <laughs> pardon, pardon me. Yes. Uh, a year of celebration for Aston Martin ahead and, of course, then a year of celebration for the Aston Martin Heritage Trust celebrating quarter of a century looking after the heritage of this great brand that we all know and love. And the great brand continues because, of course, it's kind of the V12 swan song this year, the launch of the new DBS 770 Ultimate in 2023. Uh, production's going to be limited to just under 500 models, I think. And, uh, yeah, and all, and all sold out. All gone. Uh, not so, a surprise. Sorry, Wayne, you've had it, mate. That's it. Well, uh, I'll have to wait for the next one to come along. But unfortunately, it looks like the next one will be, what do we reckon, Gary, all electric? Um, I think so. I think this is part of the um, Aston Martin have, have said for their, their birthday celebrations this year, they're going to be uh, showcasing some new models. Um, I guess there'll be concepts and there'll be, there's some around the world, but there certainly will be something at the Goodwood uh, Festival Speed this year. So I think we are looking towards uh, electrification now. I think this is the next, <clears throat> the next step. But you know, Wayne, uh, I've, I've read in, you know, in Autocar and other places that, the V12, you know, it has a very special connection with with Aston Martin and, and with enthusiasts. And Aston Martin still haven't ruled it out, you know, for the future. Um, it may come back in various forms. Don't forget, not all around the world is is going electric. There are markets, huge markets, where perhaps they, you know they are more a bit more flexible for the for the internal combustion. And we may see the V12 appear in special forms uh, for other markets, not necessarily for the Europe and, and UK, but elsewhere around the world. On synthetic fuel, I don't know, but I don't think it's been 100% dis, um, dismissed the internal combustion V12. It will be a shame to see it go, but you know, environmental pressures and and I totally understand those. I think we are looking towards the, uh, the electric future from now on. And what a way to uh, sign off V12, DBS 770 Ultimate, and what a cracking-looking car that is. Well, it's going to be available in coupe and volante form, of course. So 300 coupes, 199 volantes, and listen to this, 5.2-litre V12, 770 PS of power at 6.5 RPM, and... 
900, a whopping 900 newton metres of torque. Whoa. Wow. Uh, which is going to throw it up the road at 211 miles per hour, they reckon. Uh, and while you sit there and listen, no doubt, to that amazing 5.2 litre V12 singing along. So uh, anytime you want to take me for a ride in yours, Gary, I'm there. I'm ready. Okay, uh, fine. I'm uh, unfortunately I am um, one of the number of lucky customers uh, to have the car uh, come in my way, and I, I am also lying. Uh, so um, if Aston Martin are listening, and I know they are avid listeners, um, you know if you feel that you would like to lend a uh, DBS 770 to the Aston Martin Heritage Trust, um, well, I'm sure we can fit you in. Absolutely. It'd be lovely to see that car down at the Aston Martin Heritage Trust and, uh, yeah, maybe wheel it next to the Ulster and see how far they've come in all of those years. Uh, but um, car collections are what we are about to speak here on the Aston Martin Heritage Trust podcast because you've been inspecting an amazing one, Gary, in Hatfield, just outside of North London there, uh, a company that is celebrating three decades in the motor trade and a company that has a phenomenal facility. We're, of course, talking of Nicholas Mee. And, Gary, you went to meet Nicholas, didn't you? And uh, have a look round his collection and have a poke round his farm. Oh, I did. It was uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um had an invite to go and see uh, Nick Mee uh, at Nicholas Mee & Co. at Hatfield. Uh, now, I think it's been at that premises for a while now, but I haven't been there. And, my goodness, Wayne, what a beautiful sight um huge site some uh refurbished renovated or even new build farms which look very uh very uh, ancient but new build construction and it's a well if you're an aston martin enthusiast you would just be uh dribbling all over the cars i don't think he would appreciate that somehow or the other but uh the 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 cars are so well presented in the barns with the workshop facilities the after sales and they do most of the work on site now. It really is a lovely, lovely place. So, uh, say, as you said, three decades, 30 years of memorable car sales from Nick Me. And now I've known Nick uh, for many years when I was a, a youth uh, going into London and walking down Sloan Street, and there was an Aston Martin dealership there, um, poking my nose uh, at the window, putting my nose against the window, and my fingerprints on the glass, which I'm sure was, wasn't really appreciated, <laughs> and uh, seeing the beautiful V8s, and I was thinking, oh, one day, Gary, one day. And so Nick Me effectively, I say, started from there uh, in Aston Martin, but he goes back further than that, you know, his car sales history. And so when I was with Nick, we discussed his his history of cars, uh, his his family, his interest in cars, how he started, how he got involved in Aston Martin, uh, through through selling the cars, his views on the on the Newport Pagnell V8s, the Lagondas. Um, spoke about uh, Victor Gauntlet, the great Victor Gauntlet at the time, his leadership leadership style, and how you know he moved from you know from Aston Martin uh, Sloan Street to Chevelle Place to other areas in London. To ultimately, I think this this most wonderful facility, uh, great stories. Uh, Nick is a great raconteur. He has a great uh, number of uh, stories and anecdotes from that period, through the seventies and eighties to current days, uh, up until the factory the the, uh, the four takeover, which he had an opinion on. And uh, so, it's uh, I like to think it's a, it's a lovely podcast. Um, so we press record and we let Nick me go and. Uh, we hope you enjoy it. 
Excellent. I met him when I was recording podcasts for Top Gear Live back in the day when we used to run the MPH show, and he was good then. I imagine he'll be just as good now. So let's go and have a look at Nicholas Mee with Gary Taylor's interview next. Immerse yourself in the rich heritage of Aston Martin. The cars, the people, the history. The Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Nick, thank you very much for joining us on the Aston Martin Heritage Trust podcast. It's, uh, I'm delighted that you're here. Oh, well, Gary, it's a pleasure to see you here, and thanks for making the journey. Um, I've got to firstly say um, how much I admire you for the work you're putting into the Heritage Trust, which is something I've, I'm wholly supportive of, and I think it's a great... Uh, I don't know whether the word is institution or... Some suggest we should be in an institution. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I've heard that before. Uh, but yeah, no, I think the work that you guys do in the Trust is great. And uh, so I'm more than happy to do this podcast and I'm, uh, I'm all for it. Thank you very much, Nick. That's, that's very kind of you. Now, uh, Aston Martin enthusiasts will probably know, uh, looking on Aston Martin social media, and if you subscribe to Nick Me uh, full bore newsletter... Uh, we're currently in 30 years of trading isn't that right Nick? Yeah indeed well so it's 30 years since we formed or or, or incorporated the company Um, those that know me will know that I've been attached and in the Aston Martin brand since 1976 actually uh, when the company Aston Martin had uh, just come out of some difficult times and receivership Uh, and I joined the company in London uh, on the sales side and uh, for whatever reason, um, and there are several of them, I've remained involved in it ever since. Nick, before we uh, get into your Aston Martin history, if I may, I'd like to go back to the beginning, you know, back, back to your back to your youth. Um, so, uh, were there were there cars in your family? Was 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 there a car history in your family? Was an enthusiasm for that? Uh, yeah, well, it, it seems to have been inbred. I mean, my, my first, you know, I was one of those children in, in the back of my mother's Triumph Herald that used to swivel around looking at every car and identifying it and saying, yeah, that one's a Standard and that one's a Ford and that one's a Vauxhall. So I suppose there's that. But also my great-grandfather, uh, and this is a coincidence, um, was an apprenticed in London um, at the turn of the last century as a wheelwright and coachmaker. And uh, he formed a business, uh, funnily enough, in Hatfield, J. Gray and Sons. Uh, and uh, they, they used to repair and maintain and build coaches and supply, funnily enough, Lord Salisbury, who owns the estate we're on and talking now from. Um, and that business uh, progressed from there through being um, uh, associated with the R- RAC and the AA in the early days of motoring and uh, maintaining cars. Uh, through to the 1970s when uh, Jay Gray's were BMC agents and dealers in Hatfield. So um, there is a, um, yeah, something in the blood that goes back to those days from my great-grandfather on my mother's side. I can understand it being in, in the family, but, uh, you know, the children don't necessarily want to follow on from that. So, you know, in your education, did you always want to be involved in cars or did you aspire to be a chartered accountant, line tamer or any of those things? <laughs> well, firstly, uh, education-wise, I um, uh, was fortunate or unfortunate enough, depending on your view, to go to a boarding school. And I really didn't like school and I didn't get on with being at school and school didn't get on with me. So when it came to 
uh, an age when I could leave school. I just left school. Didn't want to do further education. And um, not uh, knowing, what age did you leave school? Seventeen. And, and not knowing what I wanted to do, my mother sent me off to one of these vocational guidance counsellors, who basically said, "Go to college or do something you like doing." And I liked cars, so um, I. Uh, found employment with a company called Henleys of Hendon. Henleys at the time were um, the largest Jaguar dealers in the world. And I enrolled in something called the sales training program, uh, which was interesting uh, in so much as there was no sales training. But <laughs> there was an awful lot of being a fitter's mate and learning about service reception and parts. And uh, all those things that have actually stood me in good stead over the years in a grounding of the industry. Uh, that's started. So starting with Jaguar, so I think we, I think we've the Aston Martin orbit have, have always associated with you with Aston Martin. So you started with Jaguar. Did it? Uh, were you involved in other marks before you actually got through to Aston Martin? I, I will be intrigued how you got into Aston Martin. What about up to that point? What ha- what marks were you involved with? It? Yeah. Okay. So well, I did um, just under two years with Henley's. Uh, on the Jaguar side, but literally, I'm talking about on the shop floor in a set of overalls, um, you know, bashing exhaust systems and changing oils and God knows what else. I then <coughs> uh, took a job, uh, a friend of mine who I'd met at Henley's had taken a job at AFN in Isleworth. AFN were Porsche cars, GB at the time, down in uh, in the Falcon Works in Isleworth. And a job came up there, uh, which I took. So I did that for about a year. Um, which probably takes me up to being sort of 19 or something like that. And uh, very shortly after that, I actually went and lived in the States for 18 months, um, where, um, I, uh, yeah, for a period of time over there, I did take a job trying to sell cars off a used car lot for Bill Seidel's Datsun. But that was actually at the tail end of the fuel crisis, and uh, uh, the used car lot was full of Cadillacs and Buicks and... Uh, and uh, uh, gas guzzlers, you couldn't sell them for love nor money. But they gave me a car and a so, bit of money. So this was about 1973, was it? Correct, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was there in the States, 73, 74, uh, came back to the UK in 75, again, not knowing what I was going to do, but uh, there was an opening in the, I think it was an investment in the Telegraph at, uh, for HRO in, in South Kensington, uh, wanted a junior salesperson. <coughs> I had an interview. I told the man who was interviewing me, who was a man called John Leppard, he was uh, quite a character, an MD of HRN at the time. Um, and I told him I'd been selling cars on a used car forecourt in Florida, which impressed him. <laughs> I didn't tell him I hadn't sold any. Um, and he offered me a job. And so I started at uh, HRN in South Kensington, a showroom which is still there today, although it's Lamborghini. Um, and we had uh, franchises there were uh, Ferrari, Rolls, Bentley, Rover and Jaguar. So that's where I really started to sell cars. And at that time worked under a guy called Tony Nugent. Nugent had been the, I think what you would call the brand manager at HRO for Aston Martin. Uh, but of course then when Aston went out of business, that stopped for him. Uh, when Aston started again, they recruited him in 1976, in January 76. Uh, to open a company called Aspunder Sales in 33 Sloan Street, London. And, and I'd been working under Tony, or, or, uh, who's affectionately known in the day as Huge Nuge. Um, 
and I was living, funny enough, at the time in Knightsbridge, so I was walking past the showroom, which Aston had taken in Sloan Street, uh, every day, and I used to pop in and say hello, and then one day he said, you know, come and sit down, and uh, we had a chat, and he said, you, would you come and work selling Astons? Um, and so I was quite flattered by that, and then when he offered me double the salary I was earning at HR Earns, it was a bit of a no-brainer. So I think you say Aston went out of business. I'm just trying to think which time, at w- which one of times Aston went out of business. So that was probably about 74, was yeah, it? It was, it was 74 to 76. That's, that's the only time that it actually ceased to exist. And I think that was the time when famously uh, children were sending some pocket money to Aston Martin to, to, to save the business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was, um, you know, it was one of those quite interestingly uh, when Aston was going out of business and uh, under William Wilson, um, they had applied to the then trade and industry secretary for a grant or loan. It was troubled times in the UK at the time. Um, so they'd gone to the government for a bailout, and the trade and industry secretary was a man called Anthony Wedgwood Ben. Uh, yes, I, I seem to remember that one. Yeah. yeah, so you can understand why he said no, because uh, I can't imagine he could think of a single reason uh, to save Aston Martin, a luxury brand. But uh, yeah, the, the company was saved um, in that period, 74, 76, by uh, a consortia, really, that was headed by Peter Sprague, Alan Curtis, Dennis Father, and George Minden. Uh, they'd bought the company and uh, production had started again by January 1976 and in March uh, 76 uh, I started at Aston Martin Sales uh, selling uh, cars under uh, Nugent and uh, we had uh, Belinda Berry was our was our secretary there and George Press who was our caretaker and that was it. So Aston Martin Sales in, in Sloan Street was that was that part of HR Owen or, or Aston Martin? No, 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 it was it was wholly owned by Aston Martin. Oh, was, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's where I first got into Aston, and um, and I have got to say at the time, I mean I'd been selling Ferraris and Rolls and Bentleys, and I think I'd probably only driven two or three Astons, so it was still a bit of a mystery to me. Um, but you know, listen, I was what twenty something or another, and someone doubled my salary, so I, I learnt fast. So it doubled your salary. You suddenly fell in love with Aston Martins. What uh, what were Aston Martins like at that time to compare to some of the other cars you were selling? Was it uh, were you pleasantly surprised or a bit worried? Uh, interesting question. So the first time I drove a V8, I was a little concerned because here I was in a car which actually. Um, you know, well, what was it? You know, it was a new thing altogether. And, and the V8 is quite a quite a, a, a motor car to drive, uh, particularly if out of the West End. Um, but uh, after two or three drives and spirited drives, I began to learn the performance availability and the comfort, and I, and I really began to get into the V8 as actually what it is, which is a very very good consumer all rounder. So Aston Martin. Uh just gone back into production um was it relative after we the recession had finished or we were just getting out of recession we had a new G, uh, new dealership in sloan street uh relatively easy selling the cars uh no not at all uh, because uh <laughs> so Aston Martin's are not cheap we know that and uh, selling those cars in those days um was difficult because Firstly, the V8 was no longer new. It was an older car. Well, when, when did the V8 come out? I was just trying to think. The, it, um, it came out in... No, no. The, the, the V8 first came out as the DBS V8. DBS V8. Which gained itself a reputation for being unreliable. 
Um, and then the carburetor V8 came out in, in uh, back in, in 73, uh, 74 model, yeah, um, which did sort out a lot of issues. But it was kind of too late. You know, the, the, there were all sorts of issues that had been going on in Aston Martin, um, the sale of land to prop it up and so on. But William Wilson ran out of money and, um, and there wasn't any money coming from the government. It went out of business. The, the, the consortium I've just mentioned stepped in uh, production kicked off again and we had to get cars sold but they were that was 76 so the car was already six seven years yeah, old um, and uh, so it was a six seven year old car which had the reputation of being an unreliable car going back to the dbsv8 um, and also um, had just come out of a company which had gone out of business. So, mm. you know, you're saying to people, spend a lot of money on this motor car, and uh, if you do, we'll stay in business, and if you don't, we probably won't. So, so it was a push, a push, push, push. It was a push, and I can certainly understand that. And I believe, I think we're talking 1976, 77 now. Uh, the V8s were a struggle, but they, they did sell, but there was a saviour in Lagonda, I believe. Uh, quite definitely. Um, so Lagonda, uh, which was, I can't remember, was it 77 Motor Show? I, I can't remember. I always remember the front cover of Motor Magazine, the show special of the, of the uh, Lagonda. Well, it was, listen, it was front, front cover, of, I think it was front cover, or certainly inside front cover, uh, in the Telegraph. Yeah. It was massive. Um, it was radical. Uh, it was, uh, uh, how can I put it? An, build as this future car with electronic instrumentation, uh, lots of advances. And what it really did uh, was it put Aston Martin back on the map in the public's eye as a company that was back in business. So suddenly, uh, you know, there was new product. Oh, they must be back in business. Oh, it's a future car, yeah. Uh, I was on the show stand on the launch for the duration of the show. It was 10 days, hard work in those days. Um, but people were flocking to see them. I mean, it was it was the star of the show. We were taking orders uh, during the show, and, uh, and I've often joked about it, but people did uh, essentially queue to order these cars. So it did the trick, very important. Of course, that car didn't work, and it was another three or four years before the, they hit the road. Uh, lots, of, lots of conversations about when am I going to get my car. Um, but, yeah, a vital car, and, and in fact... If Aston's hadn't had the Lagonda, um, there's no way that company would have got past the back end of 1980, beginning of 81. Do you feel that, I've always been intrigued by this question, the car that saved Aston Martin, because Aston Martin, were any niche car manufacturer, they can't really to have a, uh, afford to have a car that uh, a car that fails. But do you feel, in particular, the the Lagonda saved Aston Martin? Oh, categorically, yeah. I mean, just if you think about it, that you know, having a new product uh, that put the car back in the public eye, but also the numbers of orders and deposits that came with it were very useful at the time. And um, there's, there's no doubt about it. It, it it uh, introduced Aston Martin to markets in the Middle East, the Far East. It uh, reinvigorated Aston Martin in the United States. Uh, this was a car, it's very expensive, and, and it was uh, not for everybody, but it was for people who were very wealthy, for, for sheikhs and for kings and queens and presidents. I seem to remember, I think, was it the price had doubled from the time of announcement to, to launch or something like that? A consequence of inflation. 
<laughs> we've had this discuss we've had this discussion before the uh, podcast and i'm not going into that now um who were who were buying the lagondas who were buying aston martins at this time i think the lagondas just opened up a whole new market around the world didn't it oh categorically i mean you know we it was yeah shakes from the middle east it was presidents prime ministers captains of industry i remember you know one particular guy in england owned a football club and you know, this was people who were very wealthy and almost felt privileged at the time to be able to get one of these cars. They were scarce. I mean, by definition, we know uh, with a hand-built car, there's low, low volume. And uh, for three, four years, other than, you know, once production had started, it was the hot ticket to have. You, you know, we were doing stretch ones, Tickford-bodied ones, boomerang aerials on the boot with TVs and hi-fis and telephones and custom build stuff. It was really very exciting. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, Lagonda undoubtedly saved Aston Martin because if it had just been the V8, um, it, as I say, it wouldn't have got past 1980. But fortunately also, and, and the Lagonda does sort of overshadow it a bit, you had the introduction in 1978 of the Volante and the Vantage models based on the V8, and this was, they were both new models. Um, Vantage, uh, you know, giving a more extreme performance. In fact, it was tagged as Britain's first supercar. Yeah. And the Volante, um, which actually, uh, uh, the, the United States, they didn't want coupes, all they wanted was convertibles. So an awful lot were built and sold over in the States. Um, a lot of them are now back in Europe. Um, but yeah, just the rolling out of a model range um, and getting them out of the door saved the company but the Lagonda was the one that bankrolled it because there were substantial deposits with those cars I'm going, I'm going to lead on to this uh, later on the podcast but uh, Aston Martin sales were in Sloan Street what, what uh, was London a good at that time was that a good environment to sell cars yeah absolutely um, I mean London before I finished at Aston in 1991 we actually had captured 60% of the UK destined product market. So so 60% of new Aston sold in the UK were coming through the London office. This was actually a very similar figure to Jack Barclays with Rolls-Royce and Bentley at the time because people used to like to come to London and uh, spend the weekend and buy their car or come and have business meetings and buy their car and take their colleagues and friends and make an occasion of it. Mm, mm. So Rolls and Bentley's out of Barclays Square did very well. We did uh, quite well out of Sloan Street. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, it, it's changed dramatically since then with the, um, you know, the anti-car movement in London at the moment, and it never seems to be uh, going away. So um, yeah, it, we built up Aston Sales as a business very nicely, and we were doing not just new car sales, but we were doing used car sales with uh, the cars prepared up at uh, Aston in service in Newport Pagnell. Uh, and we were doing export sales. It was quite important too. So in those days, people from overseas could come to the UK. We could take them up to Newport Pagno, I often did, show them around, show them how the cars were built and uh, discuss their requirements, take an order, and they'd come back in six months' time, pick their car up on a personal export scheme. They could keep it in the UK uh, registered for up to 12 months um, and then either pay taxes on it or remove it from the country. Very useful. And uh, I'm not sure you can do it today. Um, but yeah, personal exports, new, uh, used and new UK destined product was the game. 
I, I'm going to uh, ask you a question that's going to make me weep and probably the listeners as well. I mean, obviously, you said you sold used Aston Martins. Uh, so we're talking 1975, 76. So presumably the used ones would have been DB4s, DB5s. And how much would they have been going for then? Well, yeah, not so, actually, funnily enough, not so many. Um, the, the used car business we built up was in the VAs. Uh, more than anything. Occasionally we'd have a 6 Mark II or a 6 Valentia or something in DB5s, but it wasn't the thrust of the business. Um, V8s was it, and part of the reason in doing that was that it it gave us the ability to uh, underpin the values of the used cars, which helped sell the new cars. People won't buy a new, very expensive car if they see massive depreciation in the marketplace. So us being involved in the late, low-mileage used V8s and keeping the prices up to a sensible level meant people could feel more comfortable buying new cars. It worked because of the low volume. What was the waiting list uh, then for a new Aston Martin? In the 70s, late 70s, early 80s, there wasn't a waiting list. I mean, we we might have said there was a waiting list, but there wasn't one. Um, In fact, when when the model changed from... uh, uh, you know, you know, the Oscar India came out at the back, yeah. you know, for 1979 model year. And uh, <clears throat> we had quite a few of the pre-Oscar India V8s to sell at that point. And, um, uh, you know, I was going up and down the country visiting people's offices who had expressed an interest in an Aston Martin. I was sitting down in their office, having checked out what the colour car that they had in their director's parking spot, was it white, blue, silver or whatever, um, and they were talking about placing an order for a new car, and we'd have that discussion, and we'd get to the point of saying, okay, well, you know, you can have a new car, but it's going to cost you, whenever it comes through in six months' time, the manufacturer's list price on the date of delivery. So we can't fix the cost now, it's whatever it's going to be in six months. And, um, uh, but actually, well, you know, if you want a blue one, because you've got a blue one in your, in, in your parking spot. Oh, yes, I do. Yeah, yeah, we might have a cancelled order. And, uh, you know, so we'd <laughs> get these cars out of the door. So, the, you know, there's always an, uh, an element of creating the illusion of a waiting list for any manufacturer, I'm sure. But in those days, there was no waiting list. Uh, that came, funny enough, from the mid-'80s onwards. I'm intrigued by Oscar India. Now, I'm going to uh, say something to you, because you said something to me about Aston Martin interiors many years ago and you won't uh, you won't remember this now I think it was when uh, Oscar India I think there was a, a, a spec change in the car but it, they became more, more luxurious there was walnut there was yeah, more leather yeah, yeah yeah so Oscar India was um, how can I put it yeah uh, it's all part of the process of uh, elevating the position of the car in the marketplace and its perceived position um for the 1979 model year, it was the first updates on a shape that had been introduced in 1973. So the bonnet was changed, the rear wing profile changed, given a little lip at the back and an aerodynamic element. This is when aero was coming into importance in car design. Um, and the interior was luxified, for want of a better expression. Mm-hmm. Up until then, all the dashboards had been covered in black vinyl with black instruments and black switches, and it was all a bit sort of British and 70s. And so just doing the dashboards in interior colour leather and, uh, and, and putting some very nicely done 
uh, mirrored burr walnut finishes on the doors and across the dashboard and changing the centre console, lifted the whole interior leather headlinings. And so suddenly we had a car which could be considered as an alternative for a Bentley or, or a, I don't know, any one of a number of cars. It lifted the perception of the car in many respects. Mechanically, pretty much the same. But uh, this is what manufacturers will always do. It's, a, you know, it's an, an uplift and an upgrade midway through a model life. It was just a very long model life. Yes, indeed. I, I remember, I think it was at a time, uh, because the last of the, shall we say, luxurified Astins were probably the DB7, if you like, if you're talking wood and leather. And then we had the Gaiden cars come out on a VH mm-hmm. platform. Yeah. And I do remember you saying to me, it says, if Aston Martin, of course, then they, the wood and the leather of that uh, luxurious nature had gone, if you like. And you said to me, uh, Gary, if Aston Martin still produced cars, or should we say a gentleman's library, it mm. would still sell. Did you, did you, do you remember saying that? Yeah, no, I, I, I've always maintained... I mean, this is, I understand the whole Gaiden era cars, and, and it has introduced a raft of new people into the Aston Martin brand. Um, a different client, if you like. Um, but, but there are plenty of people that have had the wooden leather interior cars that looked at the modern Gaiden era motor cars and it didn't appeal to them. So mm. to some degree, they've left those people behind and those people have gone to Bentley. Mm. And after mm. all, you can go and buy a new Bentley Continental GT and it's got acres of leather and wood mm. and it makes people feel comfortable. The thing about wood, love or hate it, not everyone loves it, it is dateless. It doesn't, you know, it's just like sort of there and it's nice and it's comfortable and it doesn't date. It just is like a library. It's like comfortable. Mm. It's mm. like going to the, sitting in a big armchair in the REC club or, you know. So, uh, yeah, there's something to be said for that. And, and, and I've been on record with one, two people saying, even at Gaiden, that, uh, you know, you should be producing a car with a more generous uh, seating in the rear and uh, with a slightly more traditional interior to win back some of those clients that were hard won in the old days of the 70s and 80s and give them a car that actually they want. Uh, Yeah, go head-to-head with uh, Bentley uh, and their Continental GT. They've done rather well with it, haven't they? Can we move on to to Victor Gauntlet? Yeah. Uh, Because I I believe you... uh, So Victor Gauntlet came in. uh, When did he... uh, when did he and Peter Levinos have a have a uh, controlling interest in Aston Martin? Do you recall the time? Yeah, absolutely. So through the very early 80s, 81, 82, um, we talked about it being saved by Lagonda, uh, but also by other investors that came in and out, uh, people like Peter Cabri of the chocolate fame and so on. Um, and at that time, I had, as a client uh, in Sloan Street, Victor Gauntlet. In fact, I'd sold him two Ferraris and tried to sell him a V8 Volante. Um, There's a very famous story about one particular Ferrari, uh, which I won't go into now. Um, But, uh, yeah, he he was a client, and uh, he uh, became acquainted with Alan Curtis, who got him in. At the time, Victor had a company called Pace Petroleum. That was based in Farnham, wasn't it? Yeah, very successful petroleum retailers with outlets up and down the country. And so getting involved in Aston's for him at that point was, I won't say a drop in the ocean, but it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't major. Um, but the, what he brought to the business, apart from 
uh, uh, some cash, uh, was a tremendous amount of enthusiasm and uh, a motivation to people inside the business. And uh, yeah, that, so that was earlier in the 80s and, and within a year or two, through the association uh, of uh, motorsport, uh, partly with Nimrod and so on, and through the love of collecting cars, um, he struck up a relationship with Pete Levanos, who then, I think it was in 1984, uh, with the backing of Ceres, which is the Levanos shipping empire, um, bought in uh, to Aston Martin, and it was very much um, a, a gauntlet uh, Levanos show from then onwards until the Ford uh, acquisition of 75% in 1987. Um, the Levanos funding... Um, gave the company quite a lot of stability and uh, Victor gave it uh, direction. I met uh, Victor Gauntlet once and it was it was an amazing experience but obviously you met him quite a few times. What, what was he like as a person, as a character, as a, as a mentor? What was your memories of him? Well I, I don't want to demystify the guy but uh, uh, so Victor was very kind to me, very good to me and, and he was a mentor for me um, and yeah I used to probably see him once a week and speak to him several times a week um, he was a man who would look at a problem and he would form a strategy uh, for a solution and follow it through and it was well thought out he was a, he was good at strategy basically um, and good at execution good at motivating people and a team of people around him uh, who were all very faithful and uh, would go to the ends of the earth to uh, back up his decisions and make things work. I mean, it was it was an extraordinary time actually, um, and uh, I don't think I've ever uh, really met anyone quite as charismatic in so many ways and amusing and generous, not just in uh, in you know in buying dinners or whatever, but generous in spirit. Um, yeah, marvelous guy. Excellent. Uh, were, were you still at uh, Sloane Street then, or had you moved? Because I think you had you had moved elsewhere in London at that time. Yeah, we we um, so the Sloane Street situation came to a bit of a head in 1984. The uh, the then landlords of the showroom there wanted to increase the rent from fifty thousand pounds a year to some something just under one hundred and fifty thousand pounds a year, and it sort of coincided, funny enough, with a time when we were starting to make some proper money. And it just felt awful to think that we were going to stay there and all the money that we were going to make was going to disappear into the Mother Care Pension Fund or Prudential or whoever it was that owned us at the time or owned that building. Mm. Um, and it coincided with uh, Yves Saint Laurent, uh, who were looking for new premises in the West End, uh, approaching uh, Aston, uh, or Aston Centre us, and saying, would we like to give up the showroom? We had a, uh, another 10 years in the lease. And uh, Victor negotiated a, a fantastic deal uh, for the remaining 10 years. We took the money, um, and coincidentally, again, co this is extraordinary coincidence that happened, um, I received some details from a, uh, a guy called John Gote um, uh, of a premises in Knightsbridge, in Cheval Place, which had been a Rolls and uh, a Rolls-Royce specialist and Renault dealership, tucked away, bit run down, but it was a freehold position. And uh, we just looked at it and said, you know, it's round the corner. It's, there's no passing trade, but does it really matter? 
It's a blank canvas. We can make a wonderful showroom and there'll be some change from what we get out of Yves Saint Laurent. So we did that deal and created a fabulous showroom in Cheval Place. Um, I was very fortunate and to be given a lot of responsibility for the development of that. What, what, uh, what were you at Cheval Place? What, what was your, your title? At that time, I'd taken over the running of Astrovala Sales in London. Tony Nugent uh, had retired. And um, in fact, when, 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 <laughs> when I was given that role of managing it, um, my first task was to make two people redundant. There was a bit mm. of a, that was a typical Victor thing. You're going to get this job now, but the first thing you've got to do is make two people redundant. Ah, oh, thanks. Um, so anyway, yeah, it, it, yeah I, I ran Aspen Sales and reported uh, directly to Victor, um, which was great. And that carried on until I left uh, the company in 1991. I, I certainly remember that uh, Cheval place. I had some, uh, some clients in London. Uh, there was a property company and it was very near there. And... I never had any excuse not to go to London because every time I went to see a client there, I would always pop to the showroom. And as you say, it was always it was tucked out of the way. You didn't know where it was, but I found it, and it was always a joy to go there. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, uh, you know, I, I, the one thing it's a bit like where we are now up in Essendon. Locations not that important because after all, how many people walking past the showroom are going to nip in and buy an Aston? Do you need to be on a high street? Um, but what's more important is that the location is a nice location. While you were there, and I, I must admit, I, I, I did pick this up on, the, uh, and dear, dear listeners, do go onto the Nicholas Me uh, website where you will see uh, some videos there of uh, Nick's uh, 30 years being interviewed by, by Steve Wakefield, who is the editor of the Aston magazine. Uh, and uh, yes, I did have a look through it. And I do uh, men- uh, remember the V8 Zagato coming up there and um <laughs> you know, yes uh, we haven't got we haven't got a video and uh, nick has just uh, uh, smiled now i remember this uh, v8 zagato and it was very much sold on a sketch wasn't it yeah so the initial <coughs> concepts of uh, v8 zagato um were drawings um, and, and the drawings and the sketch was very impressive. It was a lovely looking thing. Yeah, well, the original concept was going to have a dry sumped engine and it was going to be fuel injected so the bonnet was flat and it could be lower and sleeker and so on. Uh, the reality was that, uh, that that didn't happen in the end. But yeah, the, the original uh, uh, project was um, announced with um, a very skinny little pamphlet and some drawings and sketches coloured in and a press release. Uh, but actually, very quickly, uh, there was a scale model, a wind, wind tunnel scale model produced uh, for that car, uh, which I went to Italy uh, to collect one weekend and, and fly back with it. Sat with me in first class on the seat next to me. Hang, hang on, you, you had the V8 Zagato model yes. first class next to you yes. on the flight back. Yes, <laughs> Different times, dear listener, different times. Well, it was. I had to go and speak to them at the desk and I said, look, there's no way this is going in the hold. <laughs> so very, they let me uh, carry it on. So, yeah, I brought it back to England, and, and two weeks later we had a launch. Funnily enough, it's still in Sloan Street. We, we um, blacked out all the showroom windows so that people couldn't see what was going on inside, and we had a bit of catering and lighting and invited clients to, to come and see this scale model, and, um, which was quite interesting. I remember one particular client looking at it and, and for the first time and saying, 
I'm not quite sure whether I can say it's a podcast anyway. He said, it's a stubby little... And I went, yeah, it is, isn't it? You know, because it, it was not quite what the drawing was. But it did look good. And, uh, yeah, as it turned out, it was quite a successful car. Um, great well, to drive. As you say, I think the, the when you see the model, actually when you saw the final production version from the original sketch, it was... It was probably challenging. The diff- there was a difference. Did did some of the uh, deposit holders say no, or did did most did most commit to it? Uh, interesting that I've got to say I do not remember a single person who had committed to a Segato once they had seen the scale model and then the full size car. Uh, subsequently, cancelling the order. No, I don't remember that oh, at yeah. all. Right. Um, you know, we were promising a car that was delivered, you know, 10% lighter, more aerodynamic. The, 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 the whole V8 genre as a vehicle uh, was always hampered. I mean, it's a fantastic engine hampered by carrying a heavy car. So take 10% of the weight out of it and make it more aerodynamically efficient and you've got a performance car. And that's what the car was. I mean, in, in the day... The V8 Vantage Segato was road tested by magazines alongside 288 GTOs and 959 Porsches, both of which had a, a way more technically advanced car than the Segato, but the Segato kept up. I mean, it wasn't a slow car. And that was by weight reduction and aerodynamics. So that's what people were wanting. That was what they were buying into, and that's what they got. Uh, yeah, no, there weren't. There were some objections to the bulge on the bonnet, mm, but mm. there was probably there was probably more from the motoring uh, journalists who were uh, probably more surprised than, as you say, probably more than the customers. Uh, yeah, you're, you're probably right, but the journalists weren't buying the cars. You left uh, Chevelle Place, I think you referred to earlier in 1991. Yeah, we were, uh, you know, the, all these cycles, uh, economic cycles that go on. In 19, at the end of 1990, beginning of 91, we were going through a. Uh, what was actually thought of and termed at the time as the first global recession and uh, yeah things were getting very difficult we had a massive order bank of the Virage car um, which had started to come through uh, at the beginning of sorry yeah beginning of 1990 and arguably um, you could say that the Virage went into production before it should have done it it wasn't as good as it could have been on day one we were delivering cars two people they had to go into production then because all the legislation had run out on the old v8s and uh, we were delivering cars to people that weren't particularly good uh, as the uh, economy's sinking and lots of people were trying to get out of their commitments to buy this motor car as they were with jaguar xj 220s i, I remember the 220 having a particular problem yeah. there it was a very difficult time uh, through 1991 and towards the end of it uh, Victor resigned from the company um, and relinquished his chairmanship, etc. Um, and at the time, funnily enough, there had been going on in Aston Martin something called a voluntary redundancy program. And I thought about this for a moment or two. I mean, I was fairly newly married and had two children and so on. Um, but I thought about this for a little while, thinking, do you know what? I'm not sure. It was obvious Ford were going to take over. How long you were there at um, that time? Sixteen years, um, but I'd I'd had all sorts of meetings with some very senior people in Ford, Ford strategy people, Ford management people, and I had a fair idea how that company 
was going to be run thereafter. And I thought, you know, I'm, Ford don't retail cars. They don't, you know, they wholesale cars. They don't understand retail businesses. And so I was having to explain how the business worked. And I could see that they were going to come back at me with a whole bunch of manuals in ring binders, and this is how you're going to do it for an hour. And I thought, you know, I do not want to do this. So I put my hat in the ring for the voluntary uh, redundancy, which um, um, took a few people back in Aston. But anyway, uh, it, it didn't, funnily enough, happen because Walter Hayes, lovely chap though he was, um, wrote me a charming letter saying we make jobs redundant, not people, and the job's not redundant. Uh, but my heart had gone by that point, and uh, yeah, I left the company um, and started trading for myself. Did you know what you was going to do when you left? Did you did you, did you say right? I'm going to specialise in Aston Martins or any cars in different. Well, the thing is, Gary, what I knew by then is I'd been quite successfully or marginally successfully um, selling motor cars mm. for almost 20 years, 17, 18 years, um, and I knew kind of, I thought I knew what I was doing and I thought I could make a living doing it for myself. Um, do I want to go through... It, it, look, I'd been reporting directly to the, the, the chairman and chief executive officer of Aston Martin. That was, Aston Martin was going to get owned by the Ford Motor Company. Walter Hayes, lovely man, very senior. Is he going to want to have me in his ear saying, should I pay this for that? What do you think that's worth? No. The, the, so there was going to be someone else inserted and I thought, I just... I don't need I don't need that I can I can survive without and do my own thing um, and uh, yeah that's what I did and, and I left and quite funnily enough uh, the following week I got a phone call from Victor one day he said what are you doing I said well I don't know at the moment but I'm, I'm why he said well do you want to come for lunch down in Farnham which I did we had lunch we sat down he pulled out a sheet of paper with 30 cars on, on, on the list and he said what are you going to charge me to sell those so we had a deal, but that was it. That's how the business started. That's how, as a sole trader. As a sole trader. Yeah, which, was, which I did for 18 months. Had a storage unit down in Hartley, Whitney, and I was travelling all the time from Fulham down to Cobham and Hartley, Whitney. And was, anyway, um, uh, that was 18 months, and then I was offered the opportunity of taking a lease on a, a Muse property in South Kensington, a nine-car garage, um, which just... That, that was going to take me back home. South Kent and Knightsbridge was my manor. Oh, going back home, it's always it's always comforting. So you were selling um, classic cars of of, of of a broad church, not just Aston Martin. Yeah, I, you know, there's always been the tendency to stick with the Aston Martin brand. But yes, in, yeah. in those early days, you know, everything from E-types, D-types, Renault 4CVs, Bentleys, you name it, anything. Uh, and then even when we were in the Mews, you know, we'd very often have uh, what, what we used to rather laughingly term Chinese stock. So that's non-core, non-Aston stock. So everything, yeah, Jags, Porsches, this 240Zs, anything like that. But majoritively, um, Aston is what I was known for. And a lot of the clients that I'd um, gained in my days from Aston Martin in Cheval Place and Sloan Street stuck with me. So it was great. Was that during the classic car boom, or was that did the boom happen earlier? I can't remember. Well, the classic, well, the, <laughs> with the infamous first classic car boom and the infamous crash thereafter. Yeah. So the, the the boom in classic cars was really from eighty two, eighty three, right through to the end of nineteen ninety, and then it did. It was a crash and burn, um, and 
classic cars didn't really gain much traction again till really the end of 90s. Um, there was trade, uh, but the values were pretty staid and static and so on. But yes, <coughs> what happened through that period from the early 80s onwards, you know, you started with one classic car magazine, I think it was called Thoroughbred and Classic Cars, Lionel yes, Burrell. Yeah. And then suddenly there's two classic car magazines, and then there's three, and then there's auction houses springing up. You know, uh, uh, Christie's getting more involved in the classic car scene, Bonham's getting more involved in the classic car. Then there are professional restorers springing up and people uh, reproducing parts. And so the whole infrastructure of classic cars mushroomed through the 1980s, survived the 90s, and moved ahead in the noughties. So, uh, yeah, it's been an interesting thing to, to, to actually sit back and gauge how that's all happened. But uh, it's a massive thing now. I mean, it's a lifestyle. And, um, yeah, it, the classic car boom, not being without its bus. But the great thing is if you take a timeline and a money line and you, and you stretch it over 30 years, classic cars have done extraordinarily well. Mm. But to get from A to B, they've been up and down, crossing that line several times, values going down, values going up. Um, but the interesting thing I was talking about the other day, I remember Daytonas in 1989, Ferrari Daytonas, were half a million pounds, which is where they are today. Oh, is it the same? But they have been more and they have been less. Yeah. It's, extra, you know, it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? It's not necessarily the benchmark, but uh, <coughs> it's an interesting thought. How long are you at uh, South Kensington for? <coughs> so we had the Muse uh, from 93 to uh, 2000. Um, so just seven years, um, interesting days. Um, you're talking about Victor earlier on. In fact, part of that time, one of his sons was working for me, um, Peter Lennon Morgan, who uh, had also been at HRNs and then went to Lamborghini, um, was, was with me for a while as well. So it was an interesting period. And, and at the time, the Muse was still very car. So it was in that Muse, uh, Gregor Fiskin, a guy called Chris Drake, who did you know, competition cars and his, uh, classic cars. And uh, Dan Margulis, who was famed and known for pre-war Alfa Romeos and pre-war cars as well. So there was quite a lot of activity. But through the 90s, it diminished. And uh, and now if you go into Queensgate Place Mews, there's only one trading company in there, which is Fiskins. Coys were up the road. Um, uh, and various uh, classic car businesses in South Kensington in the day, it's, it's thinned out now. So you moved to Shepherd's Bush? After Queenscape Place Muse, yeah. Um, we were offered the opportunity of a freehold um, of a garage. Uh, and I say garage, it was a five and a half thousand square foot, sort of, I don't know what we could get in there, about 28 cars or something like that. Um, opportunity, which was in uh, Shepherd's Bush, Hammersmith. It was sort of where, where Hammersmith meets Shepherd's Bush meets Chiswick. It was just off the gold road and uh, so we were able to buy the freehold of that and uh, funny enough uh, Victor came in with me on that and another gentleman who's a very good client we bought it jointly and um, uh, we equipped it uh, recruited two very good uh, trained technicians and we started a workshop in there and we shared the space um, sort of half sales half service and maintenance being able to bring preparation costs in-house and uh, meant, meant we, we, we could control the costs and also the quality uh, so that was that was great 
but as with any uh, of these establishments, you know, you soon find yourself running out of space. So we were looking at other opportunities by, uh, you know, by 2010, which we took. There was a showroom up on the Goldhall Road, which had previously been occupied by a company called Straight Eight. It had been vacant for a couple of years, and uh, we thought it'd be a jolly good idea uh, to take on some high street showrooms. Uh, that was a, um, there was some frontage and, and a rear showroom as well. We could put about 16 cars in there. And uh, so we, we took a lease on that and spent quite a lot of money doing it all up. Um, people remember it fondly, those that passed it. Uh, it was very much brand themed and uh, we were very lucky on the launch event to have uh, Dr. Betts, Ulrich Betts, come and uh, make a few, say a few kind words and, and help us open it with some other directors of Aston and, uh, and Aston Valley Racing and clients. And we had a great evening actually. Um, so at that point we had the workshops uh, and the showrooms at two locations. Um, and the showrooms uh, was, was very helpful for us uh, through from 2010 to 2018 and that is another boom period so that was excellent good timing good not, time. that we, not that we knew it at the time it was a big <laughs> risk it was a big risk and uh, but yeah that was great um, but eventually you know yeah, and particularly having sold my interest in the uh, in the Wellesley Avenue bi uh, um, not business but uh, building um, and taking a lease back, that lease was starting to expire and we're beginning to think, crikey, what are we going to do for space? We're going to run out of space in a minute. So we had to think and have a deep dive on what we do on that, and which is why we ended up um, in, uh, in Essendon, up here at uh, Essendon Bury Farm, um, because it's a natural progression. London, it's kind of done with cars, really. I think you're right because this is why I referred to earlier uh, when you was at Sloan Street. I asked you what was it like for selling cars, and you said it was great. You did go there, it came an occasion, became an event. You know, catch a show, do some shopping, buy a car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now, late well, no, late twenty tens, speed cameras, bumps. Well, firstly, if you're a motorist with a motor car, you're not welcome in London. No. End of story. Yeah, no, I mean, no, that's, that's it. it. Yeah. So you know, we were finding ourselves battling. Uh, in, in, when we were still uh, in the Goldhall Road and people would be ringing up and saying oh you know you've got this DV6 or DV whatever it is and I'm interested in coming see it where are you based or in London oh really are you, are you in the charging zone um, mm, okay alright well I'll um, mm, London yeah right okay uh, well I'll, I'll call you back and some did and some didn't because people don't want to go to London anymore and those that did uh, well they probably made arrangements on the same day that they say they're going to come and see us to see their coots manager or go to Harrods or get their hair done or go to Savile Row and have a suit. So they're doing two or three things on the same day. You can never get from A to B in London in 20 minutes, so forget that. And we would see them in the afternoon uh, and they'd be looking at their watch, going, oh, crikey, I want to get out of town before the traffic builds mm -hmm. up. And you're trying to deal on a, on a quarter, half a million pound motor car in 45 minutes. And uh, if you'd said to the client, you want to have a test drive in the car well, yeah. oh yes please yes yeah 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 you're in 20 mile an hour speed limits and speed bumps and cameras and buses and uber drivers so it became very problematic yeah um as it is for anyone that still tries to operate in london now let alone now actually you'd have to get charged every time you take an old car on the road <laughs> so um 
in hindsight, we categorically did the right thing by moving up here, and, uh, and it's a much better environment to operate from, not just from our point of view, but from a client's point of view. It's a much nicer experience than the hustle and bustle. Um, we've got plenty of parking and plenty of space, and, and the roads are empty. That's true. It's a, it's an easy drive from the from the M A uh, twenty five uh, the A one M. I found it very quickly. I mean, I've seen pictures of it for uh, many times, but it's the first time I'm here, and it, it is absolutely a beautiful sight. The 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 barn restorations uh, are absolutely truly fantastic. It's a very much a mixture of cutting edge technology and and heritage in those barns. I mean, how, how did you manage to achieve that? Uh, money, <laughs> um, desire. Uh, council were uh, saying this is how you're going to have to do it. Yeah, well, it was all part of the deep dive in into us thinking what what we do uh, for the future, and part of that deep dive was trying to recognise and identify what it is that clients want and expect. And uh, yes, we've produced an environment which is a pleasure for people to attend, mm. um, where. The workshops have got plenty of space around the motor cars, so they're not falling over one another when they're working on it. It's a nice, quiet environment where trained technicians who know what they're doing, don't need supervision, can get on with the tasks. Um, yeah, it's the destination, and we do find, unlike London, where people would give us 45 minutes, uh, people will arrive with us here from overseas in the UK, uh, we'll sit down, have a cup of coffee and de-stress and have a look at some cars in the show and go and have a look around the workshops, chit-chat, chit-chat, generally two to three hour visits, which is time-consuming, but it's a much nicer uh, environment for them to visit, much nicer experience than uh, going into a car showroom uh, on a high street in London. I think uh, you say this is a, a destination, and you're dead correct, and also you're pretty well known certainly to me and for a lot of Aston people for for your events mm. because when people own a lovely classic car or a lovely Aston Martin they want to do something with it and, you, and you've recognised that haven't you? Yes it's all part of it it's all very well selling cars and people taking them home and putting them in garages and barns but what are they going to do with them once they've got them so yes we, we do the events it encourages people to use their cars ultimately that means they're going to need a bit of service but uh, what it is it, it just means that we're encouraging people to enjoy the experience of an older motor car and taking it out meeting other people who are like-minded and yeah they might come here and talk tires and clutches but so what it's it's kind of bringing people together who are like-minded have the same appreciations uh, and giving them an excuse to get the car out uh, and come and visit us and visit their chums and have a coffee and a sausage roll or whatever it is that we're doing on those particular events which we're doing three of this year it's called 10-2 club um, and there'll be you know this spring summer and autumn and then we also do events we've done for several years with the local area the owners club with a community called supercar driver piston heads uh, driving groups and so on it's relatively easy for us to do and enjoyable for people to come to see and it just helps manifest and precipitate the whole classic car thing i mean why do you want a car to use it surely uh, to, to use it entirely and um 
I think one of the other events that you um, we are doing this year, uh, which you had done in previous years, and I was I was very fortunate enough to be, uh, to go on to those is uh, the Le Mans trip, the Club Tetra Rouge, and they are great parties. And I think I've been on one of them, and I don't remember seeing much of the racing actually. Um, <laughs> I think they are very enjoyable. I think that's there's a great initiative by you, and you're kicking it off again, hopefully again this year. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I did 25. Uh, trips to Le Mans and a lot of those most of them actually were with us taking anywhere from 30 to 60 uh, clients um, and guiding them for the weekend and putting mm. and, and, and laying on accommodation and minibuses and tickets and and food and drink and so on so they did turn into three-day parties and of course the run down there so great events a lot of fun it actually got to the point where uh, I think the last one we did was 17 where actually it became more about the party and less about the race, which was slightly <laughs> not what it was all about. So we did actually stop it because a lot of effort involved in doing it. Mm. And Le Mans itself has changed a bit. But this, uh, this year is the 100th anniversary of the Le Mans race. I'm privileged to have gone to 25, or if not more of those. And um, it's going to be a special event. It's the first year of, uh, of the Hypercar series as well. So we're trying to put it all back together at the moment. We're hampered a little bit by uh, Le Mans organisers itself, but we're going to get past that. Um, yeah, it'll just be for a small number of people, but, but a great one. And it'll be part of our 30-year uh, celebrations because uh, we're trying to make a little bit of a thing about being 30 years old. I mean, there's, in, in, the, in the time that I've been in this sphere, uh, there have been lots of people that have come and gone in the classic art world. Uh, people that have set themselves up as dealers and disappeared. Um, I think uh, uh, 30 years of doing what we do uh, firmly establishes the business in what it does. And uh, uh, so I feel quite proud of that and, uh, yeah, happy to shout about it a little bit. Especially in this uh, current climate or past few years of, well, pandemics, Brexit, wherever side you're on and... um Current uh, socio-economic it's, climate. It's, yeah. it's, I think we we need a celebration, don't we, Nick? I think I think the word is it's been challenging in the last three. Challenging, years. No, that's, that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think anything uh, that that you can celebrate, you have to these days. If you if you if you're in that position, um, yeah, it's has been. In fact, since we moved here, it's very much been. Oh my goodness, me, what Brexit? You know, that was an uncertain period, and then. Uh, we're getting over that and then Covid kicks in and we're getting over that and then Ukraine kicks in and we're getting over that and then we get trussonomics and but you know we've managed to get through it all which is kind of interesting and and, uh, uh, I've got to say comforting in lots of ways because uh, if we have a period now of stability it looks like we might maybe Uh, Uh, is is there any wood we haven't got we haven't got we must be a wooden dashboard and an ass downstairs I'll touch my head Um, then uh, that's going to be good news for us as well so yeah uh, it feels like a good year 30 year celebration Le Mans a few events in the bag um, and uh, it's it's kicked off rather well as well, actually. I mean, where, where are we now? Um, 11th or 12th of January or something? We, we, we are indeed, yes. And, uh, and uh, yeah. not normally a normally a quiet time, but I think you said it's. No, we've had a good we've had a good start to the year, and um, we you know if it keeps on going like this, we're going to be quite happy. So, yeah, um, it, you know, doing this podcast is. A, is all these sorts of things it's a bit like the video we did uh, which is on YouTube and accessible uh, via our YouTube channel Nicholas Me and Company Aston Martin um, 
diving back into your past and history does take your head into funny spaces but uh, it's quite interesting to do and and, I, and it's been very interesting taking feedback from that video that we did recently yeah. from some very well-established asthmatic collectors and uh, people who don't know us as well and a very interesting conversation with someone from the States the other day saying you know this is really interesting to to hear that and to listen to that because you know I came to the conclusion this guy said that I know you're a car dealer, but you're not a car dealer in the normal car dealer sense. Is, thought, is, is okay, that a compliment? Well, that's what I said to him. He said, yeah, absolutely. He said, he just, listen, I've called you. <laughs> but yeah, it was quite interesting because it was, that's really all about demystifying. Yeah. And so an open book and being, you know, this is what we do. You know, when, there's no mystery here. Yeah. Uh, and this is how we like to deal with people. And so it's a very useful you know any listeners if you've got a little bit of time and a glass of whiskey to one side i'd recommend having a a little watch of that because it's quite interesting gives some insight into a the subject that we've been talking about here and then there's a a little side video which is 30 memorable sales over 30 years and they are memorable sales uh, and they're worth looking at too um I think, anyway, we're you, you, happy to get the feedback. Yeah, well, the, the content from uh, from uh, Nicholas Smee, uh, Aston Martin, is very good. I mean, please do search their YouTube uh, channels or go to their website and you'll find it's there. So, Nick, we're just about to uh, wrap up. We, I really do thank you for your time. So we, we have been looking back in the past. Um, on your full bore newsletter, which people can sign up for. Yeah, they it's can. a free subscription. You can do it via the website. Um, it's full bore, which we is a, 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 a twice a year is a sort of 30 35 page magazine type uh e, e magazine you might call it and then we also use the uh, uh full bore date mainly for stock updates and shorter yeah. versions of full bore uh, monthly um it goes out to uh, six and a half thousand people they're all people that have signed up they're either owners of the cars uh, uh, or they've sold a car to us or they've bought parts or had services um, and so it's a proper mailing list and we find it extraordinarily effective when we're marketing a car because uh, we can put that information out to six and a half thousand people uh, who are interested in the subject otherwise mm. they wouldn't have signed up mm. so uh, anyone that wants to get that it's a free one it goes out we, we enjoy doing it. it we embed into that various different videos that are not just sales videos and we put into that also events programs and news and stories and so we call it full bore the world of aston martin the way we see it year ahead well as nick me sees it how do we look at interesting so the latter part of last year when people were asking me that question i'd look at them in the eyes and say unpredictable um and yeah it's still unpredictable but i feel that actually this year is going to be quite a good year and I say that because when you have uncertain times and we've been through that with the Brexit and we've been through it with Covid and we've been through it with Ukraine what you actually do is you store up a backlog of interest and business that isn't done because people are uncertain Mm -hmm. and when you have a period of certainty and I'm not going to say that 2023 is going to be certain but it feels a little steadier um, uh, and provided we don't get, you know, another another bombshell hit us, I think there are going to be people coming to market this year in a way that they might not have been done in the last few years. Certainly, if if uh, if uh, inquiry levels this year and business that we've done this year is anything to go by, uh, I'm very encouraged by it. 
Do I think the classic art business is going to go away? No, it's way too big. It represents several billions of, of uh, revenue to this country per annum, whether it's car dealers dealing in cars, auction houses selling cars, service departments. You know, It all carries VAT. It's massive income to the exchequer. Um, I don't think they have any interest in stopping the classic car trade or, or banning classic cars. There's lots of concessions with uh, DVLA and so on surrounding classic cars. Um, you go to any of the events, whether it's Bista or Goodwood or Classic Le Mans or, classic, or any of the classic car events, they're oversubscribed. So this isn't going to go away anytime soon. Um, and uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, we, we've got quite a lot of product. Uh, when I first started, you know, we were just dealing in V8s and DBs, which by definition are rare. They never built very many. Mm. Well, we've got Gaiden cars to think of now, and they built quite a few of those. So we've got plenty of cars to, to, to effectively, in the nicest possible way, put it, recycle over the next few years. And they're all going to need servicing and maintenance. And we are here, and we're very well placed now with space, great technicians, factory trained. We've got some great personnel. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're looking forward to a slightly more stable year. And I think if we have a more stable year in the economy, we're going to do very well. That's encouraging news of its upbeat uh, moment to uh, finish on. Nick, must thank you very much uh, for your time. I, I know you are a great supporter and enthusiast of the Aston Martin Heritage Trust and spending your time, your valuable time on this podcast is much appreciated. I really do thank you very much. Gary, it's my pleasure. Um, as you say, I support the Trust. I've been an Aston man for a very long time and I'm always happy to do these sorts of things. Uh, if people want to listen, they don't always, don't always want to listen to a car sales guy, do they? No. <laughs> In this case, they will, and I found it fascinating. Nick, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye. The Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Subscribe and get new episodes delivered to your device automatically via AstonMartinHeritagePodcast.com. dot